ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. So we're on with the self-proclaimed mediocre Alaskan, Jeff Lund. What's up, buddy? <laughs> Not too much. How are you, man? I'm doing all right, man. Uh, first off, a couple congratulatory deals here. So getting married soon. So congratulations on that. And uh, Thank you. you signed over there at uh, Waypoint Collective, Waypoint TV, man. So, you know, good job on that. We're, thank you, uh, thank you. I I see that uh, you have also done the same. So uh, congratulations to you to you as well. Yeah, thanks, man. I uh I saw that. I was like, oh, cool. You know, uh, uh, a semi-familiar face. Right. And uh, mm-hmm. that was kind of a I, I guess it wasn't a, a horrible process by any stretch of the imagination. But when you try to when you're doing something for, you know, two, three years and there's a certain way that you're used to doing it. And then I'm trying to figure out how to get everything transferred over. And I was just like, oh, this is a little not scary in the sense of being over there, but scary in the sense of the change, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. When you're own, when you are your own boss, you kind of, everything is on you. And so when someone else is looking at, or might, might have expectations, you know, it, it definitely has a different feel to it. It's fun to have that different level of, I guess, accountability. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly nice to have that reach. And then, you know, you kind of look at the whole thing in a, in a different sort of way. And, you know, you're expanding the audience. So how can I do a better job? And, um, that level of accountability would be pretty cool, but it's cool to see some of the other people who are involved and, and talk to some of the people at waypoint and and see that this is going to be a good choice and it's going to be fun going forward. Heck yeah. I'm, I'm excited to be there, man. It was funny to me. So they, you know, they send over, 
couple of emails and I'm, I'm chatting back and forth with Zach and he says, yeah, shoot me your editor, your producer, blah, blah, blah. And I just started laughing and I'm like, well, there's five <laughs> bullet points there. And <laughs> there's one answer, <laughs> two letters, yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. man, he, he said, uh, you guys, and I was like, um, it's me. It's singular. Yeah. It is the media for Alaska and it is just me. <laughs> so. I don't know. I think that might be kind of a compliment because if they look at the stuff and think, wow, there must be a team involved. Um, so I, I guess it's flattering um, that they thought that there was a team involved to, to produce all this stuff. But if it's just one person, um, I, you know, it is it, it's a testament to, you know, the way you go about things. There's a lot of people who just put stuff out there mm-hmm. and there's a big difference between like content and stuff and i don't really like the word content i think we've talked about that a little bit because anything can be content but i think there's a difference between stuff and content and then good content and stuff that's going to have some sort of takeaway anybody can just go online and start a podcast and talk about whatever Mm -hmm. and it's really about them being able to talk about whatever so it was it was flattering to see that there was value and it's also very motivating to going forward that this isn't a matter of Oh, cool. You know, we're, we're big time now because I don't think you and I both feel that we are. It's a matter of, okay, let's, let's step up the game to the next level and let's find that next thing that we can do to really provide something within our own angles and expertise, even if we don't feel like experts. Right. That's all, man. You you say that that's a very, that's a very interesting thing. Right. And that's one of the things with, with myself and my podcast, there's things that, and, and for me, it's just, I grasp certain things very well, but I would never to use the word expert, man, that, that, that has a huge connotation for me. That's like, man, I, I don't know that I would ever feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Not to, you yeah. know, there's guys that are absolute experts in my eyes. I wonder if they have the same outlook on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I started the podcast is there's to get to the expert spot or to that level, you have to go through those times where you feel like you're not good and you want to quit. And whenever people talk to people who've already made it, it seems like there's the before and then there's the after. There's not that. Tell me mm-hmm. about in between. A year in was <laughs> yeah. awful. You know, like I, that's what I want to know. I want to know how to combat those feelings of of inadequacy or that you haven't made it when someone who's who's been in the industry and they're making their living doing that i mean it's easy for them to say oh you know you just fight through you know you just keep going well you know someone who's still in the process of of doing that like that's the thing that that i'm really interested in i like to talk to people about it and even if people aren't trying to make it in the industry just like the ordinary people who I have a job and I don't really want to make hunting my job. I just like doing it. And this is what I do. So that sort of recreational view, viewpoint is, mm-hmm. is super important too. So you're not trying to, it's not a hustle. It's just about the experience. And that's a, that's a fun and refreshing voice to have too. Yeah. That, I, that's a double-edged sword. Right. And I love the, the passion part of it. That's really, I mean, I'm just like you, that's why I started, right. To have those conversations, to get the different perspectives, but, uh, man, it sure would be nice to have this thing at least pay for itself. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You don't, you don't realize, you don't realize going into it, right. It's this, it, it's super exciting and I'm going to do this. And you don't realize what the growth takes and how long it takes and all the ins and outs and just the expenditures that are in 
involved with it. And then you start looking at it over a two, three year period and you're going, man, that's, that's a couple of really good hunts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's yeah, it's oh, tough sorry. To get, get to that point of knowing that it's worth asking money for. Mm-hmm. And when, when I first started writing, it was sure, you know, I'll do this column for free because I don't really know what I'm doing yet. But then after a while, it's like, this is good enough to earn some money. And yeah. how do you ask for that? And then with the podcast, I never really thought about it as being worthy of, of, you know, money, but mm-hmm. I don't want to always just be asking for money, but if you're creating something, then, you know, like you deserve to get paid. It's not like a selfish thing. It's not a greedy thing. It's not a toxic capitalistic thing. It's just, I'm creating something here and it's costing me money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a bad thing to be able to ask for that. I think a lot of people give away things because they're super excited about sharing something and, and, like their review or their comment or their, you know, whatever it is, they just, they get it shared on social media and that's good enough for them, which is fine. But, you know, if you're creating something and you're putting time and money into something, then, you know, I, the you might feel weird about asking for about the same, at the same token, you might be being exploited for, for what you're just giving away for free. Right. On the other side of that, I've heard guys that have, you know, really successful podcast that went into, you know, the monetization side of it and lost following because people mm-hmm. got PO'd that they were, you know, charging for it. It's like, man, that's that's something else, man. That's, you know, that's crazy selfish, right? To think that you're you're getting you're getting information for free, right? And then that's the, one of the the huge benefits to podcasts is is what you can get from them and learn from. And to think that someone would be upset that you're trying to monetize to, you know, to support it. Cause most times that's all it is, is just to support the podcast cost. But people are, uh, people are fickle, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird dynamic, but, uh, you gotta, you make your decision and, and you go with it and it's, there's new opportunities and now you just make your call and go with it yes sir so let's talk about uh your podcast since we're on that topic man what's the the mediocre alaskan podcast about and how did it come to be and et cetera, et cetera, man uh started in october of 2017 just uh wanted to alaska by alaskan's voice there's a multi-million dollar industry of people coming up to Alaska and talking about their hunt or their visit or their kayaking excursion or, you know, all that sort of stuff. And it's awesome to read and, and watch and listen to, but there's just so much I think that's lost and it, it, it's, it's just unfortunate that you don't have that voice from an entire year of, of Alaska. You just come up for your two weeks, three weeks, and you get the, to see the brochure of, of Alaska, which is super easy to look at and say, oh, my gosh, that's so awesome. You know, but what is it like in January? You know, what is it like when you have all these numbers about it's this cold and you only have this many, many minutes of daylight? But to have someone talk through it, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to provide. I've been writing a column for about... 10 years uh when i when i started the podcast and it was just a a different way of of expression when you write a column you kind of look at an experience and then you write it or you do a news article or a feature and you kind of edit out what can't fit and it has to fit into a 600 or 1000 word section 
but a podcast, you can just talk and it's very free flowing and you get all the context. And so I wanted to provide that. And here's exactly what it's, what it looks like in catch a can during the entire year. Um, so you get all the hunting stuff, we get all an idea of, of what it's like. And so that was kind of, um, providing that to people, the, the look into, to the life in, in catch a can the, the entire year. And that's, that's why I started it. So what does that look like? I mean, are you a subsistence guy or, or how does that, how does that play out when you say mediocre Alaskan? Um, it's, it's, there are so many people who've been doing this for their entire lives and they're not monetizing anything. They're just living the lifestyle. And when you look at those people who are so good at hunting or so good at fishing and they just always are just, they just know what to do. And it's, they have these stories of, of how to catch King salmon. If, and if it's been a tough year, they're still the ones that get the Kings or they always find the big halibut or they always found the deer. And it's not a matter of, they only post when things are good. It's they have that reputation and the, the ordinary person walking around town knows this person by reputation, mm-hmm. not by social media following. And so it's really fun to, to look at those people, but then I look at, at what I can do and I'm competent. Like I, I can do this stuff. It's not a big deal. Um, but just to be that good in comparison, I am mediocre at best. Gotcha. You know, I can, I can, I can find some halibut. I can find King salmon and I, and I hunt and I fish and, you know, I fly fish. And so I can do all the stuff, but just there's, there's that, difference in level mm-hmm. and i chose the mediocre alaskan because i think a lot of people are they want to find their voice and they want to be an expert too either self-proclaimed or they want other people to look at them as an expert but then you have to keep up this facade right and i, I read a lot of bill heavey and um uh, patrick mcmanus and i just love that that style of you can make fun of yourself and you, you don't have to take yourself so seriously and those guys are obviously competent. They did tons of stuff, tons of hunt. They obviously are outdoorsmen, but you could, you could read the stuff and laugh and you can laugh at the mistakes. And I think some of the experts end up, they know what to say if they do make a mistake, but it looks like it kind of burns them a little bit more or it's not quite as fun or they don't necessarily want to reveal it. You get that, that perspective that they might not want to, or that feeling that they might not want to reveal um, any sort of like, chink in their armor. Right. Short, so, I mean, shortcomings are cool, right? That's, that's what differentiates us from, from each other. Vastly yeah. differentiates us is those shortcomings, man. There's power in that. Yeah. Um, so, because I know it's going to get a rise out of you. So are you as good as the TV shows or? Not that mediocre. <laughs> uh, it depends on which one, and it depends on you know the, is the TV show you know what per- percentage of authenticity is there? Um, you know, do they? How much is it manufactured? But uh, you know, I, I I I can go find deer. I'm going to have chances. I know I'm going to have chances. I know that uh, I can catch fish you know, with my fly rod, with the spinning rod, I, I, I know what I'm doing. Um, so I'm, I'm happy and content with that. I think once you start comparing people, then you can kind of fall into the trap, but, um, I don't think I'm good enough to like have a show. Um, cause I think it would just be, just be kind of weird, you know, cause I, it just feels like there'd be a lot of that B roll of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, um, 
and so, you know, you get guides to, to circumvent that. So you don't have to deal with that. And I love getting guides when I go to new, new places because they have all the experience. And so you just cut down on all that time learning and you can just do the thing. So, um, yeah, it's fun. I'm, I'm confident. There are days that I don't feel as confident, but I think that's, that's your average everyday outdoors person. Right. Like they're the ones that are out there. And I, I wanted to speak more to that rather than try to, you know, take aim at Randy Newberg and be like, Oh, I'm going to be the next Randy Newberg. Like mm. there's no way. And so I'm not even going to try. So how does that, and I'm sorry, man, I have to ask, right. And we kind of <laughs> talked about this before, but how does, how does what we see on, on TV, right. That depiction of life in Alaska, how does that really compare? Um, because when I look at it, I'm like, man, that looks like a great experience, but that looks like a, for me, that looks like a great seasonal experience because yeah. that is a ton of work. Like the work is nonstop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Um, January or December, January and February when it's 37 degrees and rainy and it's, it's just miserable and you're waking up and there's going to be black ice. And so you have to go slower. And I put uh, some cinder blocks in the back of my truck to give it a little bit more traction. Cause you don't want to just drive around in four wheel drive all the time. And even if you do like on black ice, it's not necessarily going to help. And that's every day. And if it happens to be nice and you can get out to a river and catch a steelhead, then that looks awesome. You know, Oh man, there's even winter steelhead in Alaska. That looks great. Catch can looks awesome, but everything in between. Um, a, a buddy of mine has a really nice cabin and he's got a nice dock and on his dock, he's got four boats and he rents them out to people during the summer. And, you know, I was, I was sitting on the deck last night and I was watching there were whales. It's just beautiful. And you think, Oh my gosh, this is the life. But the weather was so bad in January that his dock blew over and he had to have it rebuilt and so you're talking tens of thousands of dollars to rebuild and he had he he took the boats out of the water which you usually do sometime in you know october if you're not going to hunt or november if you're going to duck hunt or or deer hunt and you're just at the mercy of the weather and it's absolutely miserable and it's blowing sideways and it's not warm at all and it's cold and that's it just sucks it sucks it sucks it sucks and then finally you crawl out of it and it's March and you think, Oh my gosh, we're getting longer days. This is awesome. There's a little bit of warmth behind it. And then you get 20 inches of, of snow in the middle of March Jeez. and you think, Oh gosh, this is awful. But then you have June and you have July and you have these great months where there's a lot to do. And then you think, yeah, it's, it's, it's worth it. And the people here that, that live through the entire thing and you have those great optimistic weeks in, in May when things are starting to warm up and, oh man, it's, it's pretty sweet, but it does, it sucks. There's no other way around it. So, so Ketchikan is what it's between Prince, Prince of Whale Island and the mainland somewhere, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So it's fairly protected, uh, a little bit South. Um, you have some, entrances to open ocean and so when you get uh storms that that come up we get a ton of rain and they just they just kick up all that water and it can be really nasty and we can go weeks in a row with 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 rain Uh, you can have an october october is typically the worst month and you can have 20 inches of rain no sweat um we can rain literally every day in october but it's also 
when rut starts for deer. So while October is absolutely miserable, you've got deer hunting. And if you live in Ketchikan, you get four uh, deer tags that are just over the counter. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that balance and every month in Ketchikan, there's something to do. And so that helps with that balance. Uh, you can duck hunt until December. And then once December rolls around, if you, um, steelhead fish, then you got that, um, you got wolf trapping, you got, uh, a mink martin trapping, beaver trapping. So if you do that, I mean, it's cold, it's miserable, but it's something to do and, and something to get you through it. So, uh, if you endure all that stuff, then when the spring comes, it makes it really nice. Are, are you doing any trapping? I've gone out with friends to wolf trap. They're just so stinking smart. And I'm fascinated by the whole thing, but it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I got a buddy who has a hundred or so traps and each trap with the, the chain and the drag and then the prep work is you can't smell like human at all. So you have to, uh, to boil it and then you have to wax it like that whole process and all the stuff it's going to cost uh, between 150 and $175 per trap. Oh wow! So if you multiply that by a hundred traps, you know, it takes a lot of nice wolves to be able to, to pay for that. Mm. But if you don't do that, you know, like wolves are unchecked up here. While some people like to say that or, or want to say or want to sue to, to protect the wolves on Prince of Wales Island specifically, like it's impossible to know how many wolves are there. You know, it's not like Idaho where you can fly over and you can count the wolves or, you know, go to Yellowstone and, okay, we see this pack. Like it's so dense and so pristine and so untouched. Um, like there's logging and there's some roads, but I mean, it's just a massive amount of land. It's, it's impossible to know how many wolves are there. So if people didn't trap, you know, the, the wolf population unchecked would just decimate the deer population. And the deer population is a major food source because you're paying a ton of money and your cost of living is astronomical here. And it's not even nearly as bad here as it is in, in really rural spots uh, up north. So if you're paying so much extra in, in fuel, in meat, in, um, you know, a, a box of cereals, five bucks. Wow. So it's just so expensive. So the ways that you can cut that down is to get, you know, deer. But if wolves are eating the deer, you know, that's going to hurt things. So, you know, people spend a ton of money to go kind of do their service and maybe break even wolf trapping. So mm -hmm. I'm just kind of fascinated with that. And I want to learn. So in some areas that, that I want to hunt, you know, maybe take out a wolf or two if I'm, if I figure that out enough. So how much, how, how much time do you spend up North, if any, right? Cause it's, uh, so folks listen and know, you, you know, uh, catch a can is just outside of British Columbia. Right. So I'm not sure if that would be the panhandle of Alaska or how, how you guys, you know, what you call that, but you're South as you know, um, but you're, you're quite a ways from what we would consider, you know, air quote, you know, mainland Alaska, um, yeah. you know, further to the North. Yeah, just so there's no um, argument, I got some buddies that live up in Fairbanks. So I just say I call Southeast Alaska JV Alaska because we don't get nearly as cold. Like we get, um, we'll have a week or two in uh, in December, or January, where it gets in the 20s, maybe the teens. But uh, when I went on the caribou hunt in March, it was negative 30. So that's like your real, you know, your quintessential Alaskan experience is negative 30 just madness crazy snow um but southeast alaska yeah it's about halfway in between seattle and anchorage which if you were to like superimpose that on the lower 48 um where i live is like baja california and then anchorage is 
Seattle-ish, Portland-ish, something like that. So, um, and then the difference between Anchorage and Barrow, uh, which is the northern part of the state, would be like another, like double that. Right. So, I guess if you were to superimpose on the, I should probably like figure. I should get this figured out. So whenever I'm asked this, I have a better reference. But I'm looking at my Onyx right now. If you put where I live in Florida, um, Anchorage would be. Arkansas, Missouri or so, and then Barrow would be Minnesota. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And then the Aleutian chain would go all the way to California. So um, just a, just a huge difference. And and you can't drive Southeast Alaska's 1700 islands. And so you can't drive anywhere. Uh, You have to take uh, planes or a boat. So to get up to Anchorage or to get up to Fairbanks, it's, it's, it's pretty expensive on Alaska airlines. But, um, you know, so most people, when they, when they leave or they're going to spend that money, they're going to spend that money to go somewhere warm. <laughs> yeah. That was, I just pulled up the map looking at it. I did a little homework earlier, but trying to figure out this Northern piece of it. Yeah. Which then it, it, it shows the climate difference, you know, like if Florida is so much different than Minnesota. So, <laughs> you know, right. uh, your, your, your variance in temperature is going to be, is going to be you know, stark. So not all of Alaska is tundra, cold, negative 30, negative 50, negative 60, like Southeast Alaska, our average winter temperature is I think 37 or so, um, get 115 or so inches of rain, four or five feet of snow. That's about it. That's about um, it. <laughs> yeah. Talking to a guy yeah. in California. I was, I was yeah. impressed by 115 inches of rain, man. That's like, that's probably pushing 10, 11 years here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, people in, in Seattle and Portland complain about uh, the rain, but Alaska or Southeast Alaska catch camp particularly gets, gets more. And it's always funny when people in San Diego talk about the June gloom and they take care of your mental health because of the June gloom, like it's fog and you're in San Diego, yeah. man. It's come on, go to the beach. You you gotta, it's too you, sad to go to the beach. You got about you three weeks. <laughs> you about three weeks of that in, in there. June gloom. Come on. <laughs> where do you, so where do you do most of your hunting at? I do most of my hunting. Um, I grew up on, on Prince of Wales Island and Alaska does units by area. I know that you're familiar with Wyoming and it's crazy that like a unit can be one number for antelope, a different number for elk and a different number for deer, Right. which is, oh man, I'm still, I don't even know what's going on there. So uh, I grew up in Unit 2, which is Prince of Wales Island and some of the surrounding uh, islands. And um, I've done most of my deer hunting over there. Lately, I haven't gone over there quite as much. I've kind of figured out where to go um, in the Ketchikan area, which is Unit 1A. So just whatever I can get uh, to either by road or by boat. And then there are a couple spots where they've done logging and they have the logging road still in. So you can take your boat there and you can anchor or go to shore, drop off your bike and then go back out and anchor. And then you can ride your bike uh, through these logging roads. Um, People that have landing crafts will take their landing craft there, drop that, take off a four wheeler. And man, that's that's gotta be so much better. I don't have A, a landing craft or B, a, a four wheeler. But then you got miles and miles and miles of road access that no one else can drive to, mm-hmm. you know, hunting down South, um, you drive to an area and if you have a, an ATV, you can get back to some areas that people can't get to, but you're still connected by the road system. So here, you know, you can take your boat 
which is going to it's going to separate you from people who don't have a boat if you have means of transportation once you get to a different set of logging roads and you can you know separate yourself from more people that way and if you're willing to go even further from there like you can really find some nice isolated areas in the Ketchikan area and uh, and go there but it's a pretty tough DIY program to run just because you know the deer populations are okay you know about what logging roads are best which way to go you have a big enough boat to go across some of these bodies of water do you understand tides do you understand anchoring um so there's a lot that goes into it but i'm i'm figuring it out now that's uh that's sick of blacktail right where yeah down south there yeah and then do you do any yeah. bear hunting i do uh black bear hunting uh, i didn't get one this spring i was you know it starts April when when the bears so you start to see some and then the grass shoots start coming up on the areas where creeks dump into the ocean and so that's the best place to find them because they're eating clams or they're eating the mussels or they're eating the grass and then all of a sudden like May just kind of slips by and you're like dude I didn't get a bear yet but I did get uh, get a brown bear a couple of weeks ago which is pretty sweet awesome. so. Revilla Gigado or Revilla Gigado, depending on how people pronounce it, but usually catch can people just say Revilla. Uh, Revilla doesn't have any brown bears, just has black bears, which mm-hmm. is kind of nice for people who are hiking around. They don't have to worry about brown bears. But um, on the mainland, there's there's uh, there's brown bears, and so a lot of the inlets that are back behind the island, if you go back to the mainland, you can find them in there. And so, a buddy of mine um, took me out, and uh, we looked and we saw saw a couple were able to make a stock on one i didn't really have much as far as like standards you know i didn't want to shoot i I think i have to work my way up to one of those massive 10 footers and southeast alaska doesn't have as big as you know your your kodiak bears that are just gargantuan you know 10 11 footers 12 footers um so i ended up shooting one that was around seven but um it was sweet it was so much fun just a different program beautiful bear um so that was that was cool. First ever, first ever brown bear. A couple couple weeks ago. Heck yeah! Congrats, man. You have to send Thanks. me a picture of that. So that uh, I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm looking at as as you're talking. So like unit four, that'd be the man. Some of this Admiralty Baranoff Chigagoff <laughs> yeah. Island this, Russian. There, there's your Russian uh, yeah. Russian history right there. Man, it's buddy. funny. Southeast Alaska was. It, there's a lot of, of Russian names, but there's also a lot of Spanish names as well. So different, different uh, history. But yeah, Baranov and Chichagov, and uh, those are clearly um, a Russian. Oh. Um, the Admiralty one is a draw. I've never been up there for that. Um, my brown bear came in, in 1A. Um, so so it was a couple hours by boat from, uh, from Ketchikan. And uh that was uh, for a resident. It's a one every four years. So in four years, I could get another one, or I could go to a different unit. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I'd like to. I have some friends that have, that have been up to Admiralty. Admiralty only really has one community on it, and that's uh, Angoon. So it's it's pretty pretty isolated, pretty rural, but there's a, a very high concentration of brown bears there. Yeah, that. Uh... I was, you know, before we started recording, I said, man, you know, as I, as I'm looking at this, the caribou thing, and that's always been a thing of mine, right. Is to get up there and, and um, archery hunt boo. But the more I see man with, you know, with the brown bears up there, uh, 
you know, including that on an archery hunt would be, uh, would be phenomenal. Yeah. Once you get into the interior and I've, I've learned a lot more about this talking to some of my buddies on the podcast. Um, I've talked to a couple from Fairbanks about doll sheep and about uh, brown bears and black bears. And your program is much, much different up there. A lot of people hunt over baits, Um, but just, you know, choosing the right spot for bait, putting the bait down and then, you know, hoping that something comes in. Um, Yeah. It's a whole different program. Pretty fun. I think the spot and stock brown bear on the beaches in Southeast Alaska. would be That's it right there. I, ooh, I don't know if that's it, man. That's something, but that, that's that's pretty scary. But yeah. we were making the stock on on my on my bear. Like we were we we nosed into this bay. We saw the bear, and it was it was just clawing at the at the mud and uh, eating clams. And we we're able to just kind of motor in. The wind was perfect, and there was a small little nook because you're in like really extreme fjords, so it's not like just super large flats that you can kind of drive around. It was really, really steep. And there's only like a, a slot where this, where it's flat and a, a river dumps in. So we just find this little nook and we took the boat to shore and then um, just sneaking around on the edge. And we're thinking, or I'm thinking at least like this is, this is brown bear country. So we're making a stock on one, but we're being very quiet in the woods in which there could be another one. So that, that was kind of in the back of of my head as I'm, you know, are we going to jump something? You know, if you're jump, if you're jumping like ducks or something, that's one thing or a deer, you know, you don't want to jump a brown bear. That's a, that's an aggressive animal, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that interior, and there are some areas in the interior where like just the, the grizzlies are, are going crazy because they're, you know, people aren't hunting them. Um, and that's another place where people just feel that it's their job to, to hunt the, the, the grizzly bears because, again, unchecked, you're just you're decimating the, the caribou population, especially the moose population. Mm-hmm. If you have a moose that has two calves, like your, your, your grizzly bears in there will follow the moose knowing that they're about to drop their calves. For the I, and I heard this, you know the story and follows the stocks and then as soon as they drop then it's gone right you know one's gone if not two yeah uh, that's I've heard that like literally as it's dropping they'll grab them that's just like yeah, yeah. So, that's the that's the nature that you don't hear about from a lot of these other people I mean you can support whatever you want as far as I mean. You don't want to eradicate predators, absolutely not. But there's a reality to uh, the checks and balances that needs to be absolutely. understood as well. Absolutely. Do you, now, you, are you guys experiencing that up there at all with with the furry, cuddly animals and and seeing more folks step up and want to, you know, offer misinformed protections? Are you guys facing that a bit? Uh, not so much. I think there's a lot of, there are definitely people who are non hunters, but they get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just saying, okay, that's your thing. I'm, I'm not a hunter, but I get it. You know, I understand that, you know, this is the best grass fed free range animal meat that you can get. And by not 
you know, the, the, the whole don't support the meat industry because, you know, it's bad for the earth. Well, then you should be in favor of hunting, right? right? Because I'm going to walk to this spot or I'm going to hike to this spot. I'm not participating in the meat industry and in the, in the methane. I'm not participating in the shipping of the meat to fly up to catch a can to get at the store or the plastic that it takes to go around it. You know, like the reality is that, you know, there are some people who should say actually hunting is a pretty good way of going about it because mm-hmm. your carbon fo- footprint is, is less. Right. So there are people who kind of get it and that's, and that's fine. And there are other people who, you know, feed information to, to people down South and they, they do the fundraisers and get the money for the lawsuits about, uh, um, blocking, you know, the trapping of wolves in Southeast, particularly unit two. Um, but you know, it's, it's here but not not as much because you know you, when you see it it's it's i think a little bit more difficult to ignore certain facts about it and, and to some point it has to be that the comforts or the the accessibility to said comforts is is harder right and and more expensive um so i think that's a, a leveler too you know here where i'm at folks don't you know you can be on a on a hike or something in the mountains they have no idea that they're they're walking amongst wild animals um i mean absolutely clueless i'll be standing and it's happened several times i'll be standing you know looking up trail or something looking at a deer or a bear or whatever it is and they're you know i've heard people say what is he looking at you know and it's like three or four deer there's deer in here and i'm like yeah that's you know they're all over yeah. and you see the bear signs at the trail <laughs> so it's it's you know i think a lot of that is just the, the the comforts the creature comforts that that folks are so used to now it hasn't so far removed from it that they don't get it um it's kind of nice to hear that you know even with the with the non-hunting folks up there at least at some point that uh that that it's understood yeah even in when i was in california and you go to yosemite and you would see a black bear that had the tag in its ear and people, it was so tolerant of people. Like people could kind of go near it and take pictures because the bear is so used to people. You know, it's, it's not domesticated by any means, but it's certainly not wild. Mm -hmm. Then you have the wild bears who haven't seen as many people and are a lot less timid. They're not going to come in and they're going to not going to steal any food that's been out. Tahoe, same thing. You know, you have the, the bears that are, that are around there and breaking into cabins because they know there's foods there, but then you have the wild bears too. So we have that in Alaska, you have the, the bears that, you know, the city bears that eat the trash and do that. But then it's so much easier to get to that wild stuff. So anytime you're on any of those hikes, the expectation is that, all right, there, there could be a bear that's using this trail too. So let's just be, be aware of that. And that's, it's fun to be able to access that so easily. And it's not, you know, that you're not going into some sort of tame environment. You're going into the, a wild natural environment. Sure. There's a trail that goes through. Sure. You still have cell phone reception in a lot of areas, but you know, it is a lot more authentic than uh, some of those areas that are beautiful to go to, but so many people have been there that you have a different, almost like a different breed of, of wild animal living there. Right. And that's, to me, that's one of the allures of Alaska, right? Is it, it is wild. Um, you know, those animals aren't conditioned and, 
you're beating your own trails in a lot of areas. I mean, you know, you go here, well, this is a bad example. Um, there's trailheads everywhere. And off of those trailheads, you know, you have to go miles and miles and miles to get off of a, a beaten boot path. That's, uh, that's one of the things that absolutely intrigues me about it. Kind of, I mean, it, it, to be honest, it's, it's intimidating uh, to look at it like that too. And I think that's the good thing to have. And to be intimidated, there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, you know, the two biggest stories of people coming up to Alaska are Timothy Treadwell and um, Chris McCandless. And they were people who were idealistic and kind of took that idea of what they thought nature was and came to Alaska. And it was so much more real. And, you know, McCandless going to the bus and dying because he didn't understand, you know, weather and and the, the flooding of the rivers. And he thought that just the idealism would bring him through. But, you know, he ends up dying in a bus because he can't get out. And he denied the help of people. People offered to buy him more stuff. And you go out in the woods with just a 22 and he poaches a moose and he can't preserve the meat and it all gets rotten. Like the fact that he lived that long is kind of a miracle, but it's super, super sad that people think that Alaska is wilder, but they can still survive given their kind of, you know, city skills or their idealism. And then Timothy Treadwell, same thing. He thought he was educating people about bears and how bears can coexist with people and, you know, treating or or, or teaching kids about bears because of what he learned when he lived with them. But, you know, Alaskans are like, gosh, this guy, he means well, but he's trying to live with bears and you can't live with wild bears. And when he got eaten and and his, his girlfriend got eaten too, his girlfriend ends up being a casualty of, of his, um, naivety and that's mm-hmm. it's super sad and it's unfortunate that you know they didn't have that sort of I don't know like you should be somewhat intimidated well I mean nature is a ruthless woman <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. mother nature does not play I mean there's a lot of things that I'm willing to tread the line on but that is not one of them um, and, yeah. and that intimidation and that respect um because of her, her grace is, I think, what lays, settles us in, right? But on the other side of that, there's that absolute 100% ruthless nature that, and I think for, to some point, you know, just having your hands in the circle of life and, and being a field hunting, it, it, you have that realization of what it is more than, you know, air quote, and for the lack of a better word, city slicker. Right. That's not spending that amount of time in that goes up there. And for whatever foolish sense, doesn't have that intimidation factor uh, when they walk into that. That just uh, that's amazing to me. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, Cause I is. look at it and it's like, whoa. Yeah. And I, I absolutely admire the willingness of a Treadwell specifically to live with the bears for I think it was 13 years in, in Katmai National Park. 13 years among those bears. That's unbelievable. And some mm-hmm. of the footage he has, it's absolutely incredible. So I admire the fact his intent, but gosh, you know, how many people did he tell, you know, and in, in, in California you know, that when he was talking with school kids about bears are beautiful and they're wonderful and, you know, we can live with them and we can hang out with them. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal, yeah. you know, and then the, the residual effect of not having that sort of respect for it, like nature is, it will allow you or it will tolerate you to a point, but it's not something that it will respect you and change. Like mm-hmm. it's going to be what it's going to be. And the same thing with McCandless. And every year people would go up to try to find the bus where he died. 
and you know they'd be lost or they would die and just like oh my gosh and that's again i admire him for you know just road tripping around going up to alaska and not being afraid but at the same time like there should be some sort of fear respect something and are right. you really respecting nature by denying the fact that it's murderous yeah. potentially yeah not potentially there there's no there are no if ands buts about that that portion of it you know and again that's that is i think you know one of the allures um and I mean, for most hunters, right, to think that we just do it for meat or just do it for trophy, you know, we, we're, we're BSing it. Um, I think part of it is, you know, maybe getting a little primal, but also feeling like we're on a level playing field, right? And the only thing that makes us level in that is our weapon um, because yeah. we are at a huge disadvantage in, in every way, shape or form, less that weapon. And even then... Um, if we're not proficient or we're not prepared for those encounters that we, <laughs> that we would uh, tend to run from, um, we, we are, we are not cut for that, right? We're not, we're not cut no. from that cloth, man. No, we're not. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful experience, but I, like I said, man, yeah. Alaska, as much as I want to get up there, it, it's pretty intimidating. Um, not to say that, you yeah. know, that's keeping me out. It's elk that are keeping me out, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, caribou man, I'm gonna. I want you to just kind of take the run with it and just give us as much information as you can on, you know, how does a how does a guy get up there and and call it a DIY caribou hunt? Um, <laughs> you know, where do you where do you start? Right again, you look at Alaska and it's it's huge. It's intimidating. Here, I'm gonna just I'm gonna go hit caribou. I just pulled this up on Go Hunt so I can. I can follow along, but you know, I look at that. If I go on go hunt and I pull up, you know, go to caribou, man. I mean, you're talking, you're talking Alaska. There's probably, jeez, that has to be 30 units. I mean, they are, it's just littered. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, where do uh, you start? It's the hunt that I went on in March. That was my first ever uh, caribou hunt mm -hmm. and it was a resident only hunt. Um, so there is, it's part of the 40 mile herd, which, uh, they have a quota and the history of, of the 40 mile herd is a, is a great instructional about, about good management. Uh, it was down to, I think seven or 8,000, uh, animals from 200 or something thousand, uh, animals that, uh, and the, the migration was from the Fairbanks area all the way into Canada, like the traditional migration, historic, um, so just a massive amount of land, but, uh, down in the, I think at the seventies, early eighties, it was down about 7,000 in the nineties. It was up in the 20 or so thousands. And then they really took, um, a look at the predators and you had more locals who were, or were taking care of, of wolves specifically in that area. And that's really helped with the, uh, managing the herd back. And so, it's up around 80,000 now, which is an awesome success story. So they allow, I think it was a 5,000 animal quota starting mid August, I think. And then once the quota is filled in, it's over, but because it's so close to Fairbanks, even if it is a hundred miles, like it is, it is brutal. There are people everywhere. There are animals everywhere. And there are some of my buddies that have talked about it have said that, you know, they, heard people just popping off with ARs 
and just shooting more than one animal because they're just not being meticulous about it. And so um, they have they have watched people walk past animals that have died that they have shot because they shot a bigger one or they shot through one animal and hit another one. So it's just really gross and chaotic. And some of my buddies who live there refuse to hunt there just because it's it's just too gross. Um, and then the winter part for, for locals only was, uh, was nice because you don't have nearly as many people. It's harder to find the animals. There's a lot less daylight. It's a lot colder, a lot more miserable, but people kind of work together a little bit more mm-hmm. because it's not about, you know, shooting a big bull. Cause most of the bulls have, have dropped their antlers. The, the big bulls drop their antlers in December or so. And the smaller bulls drop it in, uh, um, like February, March ish. And then because they're trying to manage the herd so that it doesn't wipe out the, the lichen that they eat, um, to, to get it in management numbers. That's why they open it up to, to 5,000 animals. You can shoot cows too. So, um, but as far as other hunts go, there are some great draws. Um, but then you have to work logistically about how you're going to access the areas. The hall road archery is one of the ones that's kind of the most popular, but you're talking a, a long drive out of Fairbanks like to get lo- to that spot. Yeah. It's like 11 and a half hours or something, huh? Yeah. And your last fuel, I think you can go all the way, um, to Prudhoe Bay to refuel, but your last refuel I think is in Coldfoot. Um, my buddy Harrison talked about that in, um, I don't know, a couple of my episodes, I don't know exactly which ones it was, but we've talked about uh, that before about the logistics of that hall road hunt. Um, and you get up there, and it's you know you're it's in the summer by southeast or by lower forty eight standards, but you know you could run into snow when you're going through the pass. You're going up over the Brooks Range, and you're dropping down. It's so like you're looking at at cold temperatures. You're looking at um, a difficult stock if you get to the an opportunity to see one because it's you have these tussocks and you have you can't use your rifle within uh three miles of the pipeline and that's what the hall road is there and there's no like spur off the spur off the spur where you can get back in areas like you are on the road right it's foot only yeah it's all on foot so if you glass something and in some areas it's just super flat you're trying to get out that you know hop around the tussocks and get back there can be difficult to make a stock but um you know, some people just love that challenge and that's uh, that's something that I would probably like to do at some point. Um, but yes, yeah, so the hall road is the archery hunt is, is a one that people really look into. If you can draw some of the certain areas, um, then it's, you know, it can be a good one, but just kind of, you know, how much money can you spend? How much can you afford? Are right. you going to try to fly into Anchorage? You do something close to Anchorage because you can, you can rent a car there at the airport and you can drive a couple hours you don't have two weeks off so you have to do a shorter trip are you gonna be able to afford to fly into fairbanks and then take a super cub out somewhere so it's really gotta your budget i think has got to be the first thing that you look at um based on the people that i've talked to who've done flyouts and um, locals who hunted it's there's stuff that you can get off the highway on the um, over the counter tag if you're a resident if you're not a resident you got to draw something that's problem number one um and then how are you going to access the areas uh, like I said, there's not a huge network of, of roads in a lot of these areas. So are you going to try to do it by a rental car and then uh, go on foot? Um, there's information out there, but a lot of people are super tight-lipped about it just because, you know, if you're a local, I, you know, I get it. I have a spot. I don't want to tell the whole world about it. So um, I think budget's the number one thing. Can you afford to get there? Are you going to rent a car? 
how far are you willing to go? How much time do you have? Or are you going to go big and get super cub flown in? In which case you'd want to talk to pilots. You want to do as much research as you can about um, asking them where they've flown, um, what, what gear you're going to need. Um, and all that, but you know, it's the same thing with anything. If you want to make it happen then make it happen, That's save up the money and go big, you know, do your research, try to draw the tag and then make it happen. Yeah. That's what I was looking at. I, I can't off the top of my head. I can't think of the, uh, aviation guys that are doing that up there. They're, they're basically doing a drop camp. Um, but it's spendy, man. It's, uh, for seven days, I want to say it was in the $5,000 range and you know, that's not not including your tag but I, yeah. something like that i think i mean that experience outside of getting addicted to it is is well worth that expenditure maybe you know even maybe every few years uh um, yeah. if you're you know if you're wired in it and it was something you expected it to be and i'm looking at that man i don't see anything on satellite imagery i mean even getting close with this great program i don't see anything but the hall road <laughs> No, that's it. I, I don't have a uh, go hunt, but just looking at, uh, at on X or Google, it doesn't even matter if you don't have one of those, those subscriptions. No, there's, there's, there's nothing. nothing. When you look at, at States down South, like it's, it, there's a grid to a point you get rural Wyoming is rural. You get mm. rural Montana and it is, you're out there, even California, you look at the Sierra Nevada and that's some rugged country, mm. but there is a major road that is heading west east east west you know it's gonna it, it cuts it there's no cutting no. there's a road that goes north and that is it and so you look at everything else to the west and the east of that you're not getting there no unless you're, you're in a plane like there's no i'm willing to drive that's great but you're not you can't get to where you want yeah i mean there's nothing i mean there's a little bit on the side of uh, the sag river but until you get to prudhoe bay and you really start seeing you know the road system that gets you around uh prudhoe bay and then just south of uh return islands or what is it ret run islands um that there's nothing man in terms of roads no, no and there's there's no services either so like between Coldfoot. Um, which is before the Brooks and then Prudhoe Bay, there's nothing. Oh, wow. Like nothing, nothing, nothing. There's not like, uh, you know, not literally nothing, just kind of figuratively nothing. Like when you say, um, <laughs> when, I, when I was living in California, people said, oh, yeah, Escalon's in the middle of nowhere. No, Escalon is, you know, 20 miles from Manteca, which is attached pretty much to, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not middle of nowhere. Right. You get up there that is the middle of nowhere yeah this is i mean just looking at it it's like wow and you really don't i didn't have any perspective on it until i did this i mean absolutely no perspective on on that and then to think that i mean there's no services that whole stretch mm -hmm. that's something else man yeah there's no going back to the hotel warming up watching some tv getting back to neutral you know it's it's you are out there and you are out there and you are out there and that's there's there's no hint of cell phone service like you were looking at you know how are you going to recharge your your in reach how are you going to recharge your phone if you're using the that the app thing to be able to text from it like all those little things become crucial um water food all that stuff is is vital do you i mean do you know how to change a tire do you know like there's just so much there because you're out there and you're not going to have people just driving by 
It's not a, oh, I flagged someone down and, you know, they helped me out. It's the middle of nowhere. Right. Literally. And I've never done that whole road. Hunt. Um, when I did the, um, the caribou hunt in March, like we were on, we were a hundred miles outside of Fairbanks and we we're on snow machines and we didn't see a whole lot of people. We saw some, but, uh, you know, in Southeast Alaska deer hunting, like you're on a boat and you're in rural area, like someone else might go by, but you know, if something happens, you got to know what to do. If, right. oh, oh my gosh, I, I do it. How do I anchor? Or am I drag my anchor? I did this or I guess it's, it's serious. Consequences are upon you. Yeah, that uh, I think that's part of the that flying experience, right? Is is getting dropped because if you're, you know, say you're on a a seven eight day or and you get dropped on Monday, you're not you don't see anyone until the following Monday Tuesday. I mean, you are there. There's no hey, let's jump in the truck. This is too much, and then you know start making the drive back down south. Yeah, I uh, I drew the Edelin Island elk hunt in uh, Southeast Alaska and. It was $900 one way to fly and get dropped off on Edelin. We didn't see one elk. I mean, it's just, it's so unbelievably thick. People talk about how the terrain in Oregon is really bad for hunting Roosevelt's. Like Edelin Island is crazy. There are people who consider Edelin Island the most difficult hunt in Alaska because you can't glass for them. It, they're just so thick. It's so difficult to find them. It's not necessarily like your doll sheep hiking way up there, your mountain goats, it's steep, it's dangerous. Edelin is just so difficult. Um, but I was up on one of these peaks and we hiked up and then all of a sudden I got cell phone service. It was really weird. I thought, oh, wait, that's weird. That's almost disappointing because I thought I was going to be shut off for a week and I was kind of <laughs> mentally ready for that. We got flown in, you know, 900 bucks one way. Okay, you know, I'll, I drew the tag. I'm going to make this happen. And then I get cell phone service. It ended up being okay because we didn't see anything. And so it was the second to the last day and there was no way that we were going to be able to, if I shot something, my, my buddies and I are going to be able to pack it all the way back to uh, the lake in time because it is unbelievably rugged um, and thick. And so I actually called and say, hey, you know what, it's, it's, you can pick us up early. And the guy said, all right, we'll, uh, we'll be by. And so the guy came to pick us up and he actually gave us a discount on the flight back to town because someone else had shot one. And we, we went, we flew back to catch a can with game bags and blood on the, uh, on the floor of the fuselage with like someone else's elk. It was kind of an insult to injury, <laughs> but, uh, we got the discount, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it was weird to, to have cell phone reception there, but I, do not count on it anywhere else uh, when you get uh, when you get out or flown out. So you are on your own. And there's only two uh, units, right, for for Rosie's up there. Unit three and eight. Um. Yeah. So yeah, Peter, I think so. Petersburg think so. Wrangell, and then that Kodiak uh, Shilikov, and that's you know that uh, Edelin Island would be in that unit three. So that's not yeah. actually it's not two, that's just north of you, right? What's that? That's just north of Ketchikan there? Yeah, I think it was maybe yeah, a little over an hour flight from uh, Ketchikan, the shore, okay. just over Cleveland Peninsula. But, um, yeah. Yeah. There's, um, in the Petersburg, I, I don't know if anybody who goes in from Petersburg uh, down there, there were some on uh, Zarembo Island, but uh, now I don't think they, they offer permits for that. I, no, they don't offer permits for that, so it's, uh, it's Edelin there. And then, um, yeah, up north on, um, 
uh, Raz or uh, is it raspberry or strawberry? Why can't I think of that right now? But uh, yeah, the the Fognac and Raspberry Island there, you can get the you can you can draw that. Yeah. Have fun with the Grizzlies. Yeah, that's uh, that's raspberry. And that's crazy. I mean, you look at this, right? And and again, I'm I'm as we're talking, I'm looking on Go Hunt. Um, that's that's my expertise right now, folks. Um, but I'm looking at that and just, you know, you look at unit three and then you don't realize it until you get into it with with all the different little islands that are in, you know, that unit in that chain. That's something else. Yeah. And there's the the weird thing about Prince of Wales, which is unit two, is that there's no moose, there's no elk, there's no brown bears. And so even though that Prince of Wales is the third largest island in the US, it's just black bear and deer. Mm-hmm. Which for some people is kind of disappointing. You know, people want to walk around, they want to see the moose. But if you go just north, um, Kupernoff and Mitkoff and Kuyu have um, they have moose. It's weird. But uh, and then you have elk on Edelin. Um, I'm not sure when. I think it was the late '80s or early '90s that they introduced elk to. I think it was Zarembo and Edelin. They they put the put the elk, but they they only really took in uh, in Edelin. The isn't there's something I thought with with Kodiak there that they uh, that uh, they planted on that island too. That's not native. Let me see if I can figure that out real quick. Yeah, I'm not sure. I yeah, at some point they got there. I'm not sure exactly when they, they introduced them, but um, yeah. That's another thing. It's funny that you can kind of know some history about your area, but Alaska is so big and there's just so much. Uh, it's it's tough to to know everything about everywhere. Oh, dude, you look at if you look at it on a, a satellite imagery is just it's like how do you get around? Like I mean, if you go and look yeah. at you know like Sitka, it's like how do you how do you even do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's all boots on the ground stuff there. Mm-hmm. And the thing about uh, a lot of these areas that you're trying to e-scout is that the forest is so thick, it hides. And that was the problem with the Edelin hunt was that it hides these cliffs. And so you think, okay, it looks pretty steep, but, you know, based on the contour lines, I, I can, I can get through this. It's not going to be a problem, but what you can't see because it's hidden by the, by the forest is that you're cliffed out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 15 foot sheer cliff. Like you're not getting down that. So you got to go around. So there's a lot of extra stuff that goes into it. It's not just a matter of, you know, just looking at it and e-scouting it. Like often the e-scouting does not tell you. And that that's always the case. But in some of these other areas where, you know, you're spending a lot of time, money, and you've really honed in on this is the spot that I'm going to go and you go there, but it doesn't look like what you expected. And now all of a sudden you're, you're kind of reeling or you're scrambling and you are, you know, outside of, of, of cell phone service, or you don't have the option to go to a plan B, like you've committed to this area either by boat or by plane. And did you got to make it work? Yeah. And for the most part, I mean, at least you're not dealing with extreme elevation too, right? Cause you're looking at what, 1600, 1700 feet above sea level on that. But it does, I have the, <clears throat> since you said that, I have the uh, shaded relief map up. And uh, yeah, I can see, I, I can see a guy going really wrong, shaded relief versus that uh, satellite imagery. Yeah. When um, the, the hunt that I proposed to my future wife on, it was an hour and a half boat ride. And then 
five and a half on a bike. So you're going from sea levels, like the elevation overall doesn't sound like much, you know, 3,000, 3,500 compared to, you know, if you're in Wyoming and you're, you know, eight, nine, 10,000 feet, mm-hmm. but you're going from sea level on a bike on an old logging road to 1,200 feet. And then you're hiking up another, you're getting another 2,000 in elevation. Um, you know, like that, that, that starts to wear on you, yeah. you know, that, 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 that's a long bike. That's a long hike. And those 3000 feet of elevation, you are really, really earning. Um, we went from, like I said, sea level. And I think I shot the bucket just below 3000, um, feet. And then after we processed it or put it on the game bags, we went all the way down from that spot, all the way down back to the boat. Um, in that day, went back, picked up camp and just kept going. The nice part is that, you know, being able to ride that bicycle down, it was, man, it was good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I imagine that has to, I mean, you, you, I don't know, weird thing to pick up on, but you're riding a bike, right on, you know, wherever this is at. And for me, if I, you know, if we go on a mountain bike here, we're ripping and running, man, and it doesn't matter. But, you know, I, I imagine that there's a certain level of caution that you do everything with because you're so remote um, and don't have services, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there's always those considerations or is that something that's always looming in the back of your head? Oh, for sure. I, I, I was I've, I've gone over the handlebars three times in my life. The first time. I, I took a corner a little bit too fast, but you're a little kid, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, fast, fast, fast. And I just squared up this rock, went over the handlebars. Another time my my front tire came like loose. And so it I, it caught. And so I went over the handlebars there. Um, but you know, it you know, late thirties, you don't want to go over the handlebars. You don't want to go over the handlebars at all, but especially if you're outside of cell phone reception, you're, yeah. you're hunting with a buddy and you don't want them to be a first responder and you don't want to be a first responder. So I was riding the brake, man. I, I'll tell you on those steep spots. And there are a couple of spots where you could not, we could not go up. So we had to walk the bikes up, but you know, and you have these old undulations and you have some slick stuff and you have some rocks and boulders and you come around some thick forest and all of a sudden you're like right on top of a bear. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's pretty fun though. When you get down, you know, the last couple of miles were, were, were fairly flat, um, just enough to kind of coast and it was more open and more people have been riding on it. So it was, you know, you didn't, it wasn't like a trail that was really choked by alders and it was, you definitely started to feel that kind of relief and that rush and that excitement that it was over and, and you'd done the work and, and made it happen. Yeah. The, the work part of it has to be so much well right with i i can't compare it but it it seems it would seem that it would be so much more rewarding to go through what you're going through to hunt there and the remoteness and the struggles in it um the weather versus you know and and i don't want to sound like i'm taking for granted what i do or what guys do or 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 girls do here gals do here um but man just to be out there in that rawness of alaska hunting man there has to be something that's just hugely satisfying about that i mean punch tag or not it just has to be amazingly rewarding yeah. And that's another part of, of living here year round too, is you, you remember back to, you know, two years ago, it was sunny and hot before the opener August 1st. And then 
alpine hunting is like my favorite. I love going up there and camping on the top of a mountain and looking for deer to pop. It's just oh, so much fun. But for three weeks, it was the weather was not good enough to be able to hunt the alpine. And so it, the season started and it's too cloudy. It's too rainy. It's just absolutely miserable. And you go up one weekend, it doesn't happen. You go up the next weekend, it doesn't happen. You go up the next weekend, it doesn't happen. You can go through in, in August and not get a buck. And alpine season is your favorite, and you waited all year for it, and you don't get one. Um, that hasn't happened. The not getting one hasn't happened to me, but like that's a possibility. And if I wasn't a teacher, like I have the entire month off, and so if I went thirty days of hunting the alpine in Alaska and didn't get one, like I should probably move. But you know, like there are people who come up here and they they make their trip and they shoot their video and they get flown in and you know it's the the sweat equity and it was very difficult and they got it done and it was work but you know you got it done on your seven day hunt can you imagine living here and year in year out you're trying to make it work along with your job and the weather just doesn't cooperate right or same thing with rut you know like october is just miserable and you're out and it's miserable and the work that you're doing it's it's 41 and raining and blowing 2025 and the next weekend it's the exact same thing and so during a, a typical weekend in october and, and november when it's rut i'm not i'm running three different sets of camo because i know i'm going to be soaked mm-hmm so I'll use like something on Friday and then it's just absolutely totally soaked. The next day I'll use something else. Um, and then Sunday I'll use something else or cycle through. Maybe the Friday stuff is dry at that point. Like that's what you're enduring during rut. And so when it does happen, it's not just, I worked hard today. It's like, dude, October sucked, <laughs> but I got it done. So you get this, the, the euphoria is like, sometimes even years in the making, but you know, I, I, I sound like I'm like over dramatizing it. Oh but, no, not at all. You, I'm, I'm actually sitting here with a, a grin on my face because that <laughs> that's, those are the things that that's the untold stories of hunting, right. In, in, in a lot of what we see, we don't, we don't hear that stuff. That's the amazing part of it, right. Is, is taking, you know, that everyday life, that everyday guy, gal, and putting that in that story, man, is amazing. As you were talking, I'm, I'm ear to ear grins. <laughs> well, this last October, October 31st is my favorite day. It's like the beginning of rut, but I tend to, to shoot a buck on, on October 31st. So I went out and I had my bow. I, I notched two deer. So I'm using my, my third tag on this and there's a nice buck and I shoot and miss son of a gun. But I'm thinking, Hey, no big deal, man. I got all in November. It's all good. Next day I go out roughly the same spot, different buck. I shoot and miss again. So back to back days, I stink and miss. And the next weekend I go out, don't even see a deer and it's raining and it's disgusting the week after that raining and disgusting I go with a buddy and i'm like no more messing around i got my rifle so there's this awesome buck a different buck a four by three and it just coming right at us but there's no there's no clearing there's not even with a rifle there's no clearing for a shot and it's coming down to us it's maybe 20 yards away and it's coming to us it's going to stand broadside because it knows we're here it thinks we're a doe it thinks we're something it's going to stand broadside it's going to wait for a second we're going to shoot it it's on but it just never does it comes up <laughs> and it gets behind a root wad and I'm ready to shoot as soon as it comes clear of the root wad and it never does. It just turns around, goes right back up and we see the whole thing, but we never have a clear shot and it goes away. 
both of us have rifles. It doesn't happen. So I go from missing and missing. Next weekend, see nothing. Next weekend, don't even get a shot. And I didn't, I didn't get a buck during rut last year. Dang. It's and it's just, it's still kind of like weighing on me. I'm like, dude, <laughs> oh, man, it, I get worked up thinking about it. But mediocre, yeah. you're, you're mediocre, bro. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> it was funny because my my fiance after I proposed. Um, I shot that buck and that was the second buck. Um, and she's, she's always concerned that I'm going to shoot all my tags in August. Like, I'm not going to shoot four deer in August. Like I'm not going to have those chances probably. Right. I mean, it's not just as easy as going up the, to the Alpine and, and shooting bucks. Um, but yeah, I ended up only tagging two last year, but, uh, I guess my, my future wife has a lot of confidence in me. <laughs> the, uh, those uh sick of blacktail man i always like that that red coloration uh mm. in their horns man it's just beautiful yeah yeah the the velvet is is cool to see up on the alpine when they're just up there but yeah once it sheds and it it just keeps that really cool cool look and mm. it's uh yeah reddish orangish oh, yeah man. just just a, a different shade of brown it's beautiful it's, it's like it's been stained or something yeah it's just amazing when you see a good specimen too yeah just amazing so what is, what does that look like man you you know you kind of mentioned you know three sets of camo what does that look like in in terms of gear for you guys i mean is it you know is it this is what I got. This is what I'm using. Is it very specialized? I mean, we talk a lot about gear and that's a big part of, you know, air quote, the industry, I guess not air quote. It is the industry, uh, but gear is a huge, huge thing. How does that look for you guys up there? And is it the whatever works or, you know, are you pretty specific with it? If you want to be dry, you're wearing rubber. Like it doesn't matter. Gore-Tex, it's, you're going to get wet. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of great technology out there, but you're just going to get wet unless it's rubber and it's impenetrable. There's no such thing as breathable waterproof because you will get wet. It is absolutely, it's just going to happen. Um, so you, you know, you're going to get wet. So if you wear some level of wool or like a Grundon's jacket, like the, you know, some people wear the Grundon's bib. So if you look at, at people who are on deadliest catch, like they're wearing, they're wearing the green version of that stuff when they're out hunting. So it's kind of loud, but you're dry. Um, I have an old set of Cabela's camo mm -hmm. that used to be waterproof. It's not waterproof anymore, but at least it insulates. So I'm wet, but warm. And that's kind of the key. It's like, what's going to keep you warm? Cause you will get wet. So um, I have a Sitka layering system, which which keeps me fairly dry, but it's just about having that that extra layer so that you're wet and and warm, and that's just kind of what you're looking for. You're wearing boots, um, extra tough boots, or, or Grundon's boots. It's rubber, so if you want to be dry, it's it's rubber, which means you're going to sweat. So you're always looking at at preparing for that. And if you are hunting in November and it's you know, 41 degrees and raining, like you, that's, that's hypothermia bill, right? Like you can, so I, I like, I'm, I'm hunting fairly close to my truck within a couple of miles, but just hunting it really, really well. Um, so solid colors work just about, you know, stealth. I think some people rely on gear or feel really good about the gear and like the deer is going to respect it because you have that gear. Um, but there is something to that layering system. That was one of the things when I moved back here from California that, what goes well together because if you have a really bulky jacket 
or a really tight fitting jacket and your under layers are bulky, you're not going to be comfortable. Right. Misery. So the, those layering systems are, man, they're so great. And, um, you know, you buy a brand new Kuyu one, you buy a brand new Sitka one, you know, whatever it is that you want to buy, that's fine. Just know that you're going to be wet. And so, you know, can you tolerate that? Are you going to be able to, to, to handle that? Are you going to be able to figure out what to do when you can't fill your hands? At some point, you're going to have to walk and, and, and move around. And in the muskegs around here, it's so... A muskeg is like a, a swamp. Um, okay. And so you can walk, walk through it, and it's pretty squishy. It's like a big sponge, but there are certain areas in the sponge where there's like no bottoms. You can take a step. And my buddy Dave did this. He stepped on some, it was green vegetation. It was a great, bright green vegetation. And he just immediately sunk to his hips. And he had to use, he had to put his rifle down and use his rifle as a sturdy spot to be able to kind of maneuver with his elbows up out of the spot. So he's just totally wet. So that's, that's what you're dealing with that level of saturation. Um, so if you think that you're going to buy this system, that's going to keep you dry, unless it's rubber, it's not going to happen, right. but that's fine. You know, like Kuyu makes great stuff. Mm -hmm. Stone Glacier makes awesome stuff. Sitka makes great stuff. So, you know, stuff that's going to then keep you warm if it's wet or when it's wet and it's comfortable and, you know, just do the, do the work. Heck yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I might use this picture of you as your as the uh, episode cover, man. You got to explain this this uh, Twitter profile uh, picture, buddy. <laughs> the straw oh, the Twitter, <laughs> the straw hat, man. It's killing me. <laughs> rocking the rocking the uh, looks like a a twenty dollar mullet, man. <laughs> Yeah, um, I've, I've found that one of the important things about being a teacher is that uh, that kind of humility. So that was my actually my staff photo for the, uh, <laughs> um, awesome. for, the for the yearbook a couple <laughs> years ago. That is um, awesome. Yeah, I just I think I think we spend a lot of time worrying about image, yes. and caring about what other people think, and you should care about what people think, but like the right people, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a little little crazy. And then this last year, I grew up my hair for for a while, so I had some I had some some crazy long hair. Um, but yeah, the the old uh, the old Twitter. You know, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm gonna just read one sentence of it because I, I like it, and it stood out. Hunters, anglers, and outdoor recreationists have always put a premier a premium on visceral experiences in nature, right? Um, but things are not always simple. So that's out of a miserable paradise life in Southeast Alaska uh, by Jeff Lund. So why don't we talk about the book a little bit, man, before we wrap this thing up and then, you know, where can folks find the book? Actually, I'm going to probably order mine right now. Um, <laughs> cool. Thanks. Appreciate yeah. the, appreciate the, the pitch there. Um, Again, it was kind of the similar to the podcast is I wanted to just give people a glimpse of, of what it is to live here. And I love watching people come to Alaska and reading what they write and watching their, their stories of their hunts or whatever. I just, I, it's, it's awesome to see that fascination. It makes it new again for us, but there's something that's missing in that. And that's the, the perspective of someone who lives here year round. And I just wanted to give a perspective of you know, what it is to live here and what, it, what is it like in, in January and February. And so I set off to write, um, 
every month as the chapter. And here's kind of what I did in the month. So short essays about, you know, steelhead fishing, um, dealing with the black eyes or whatever it is. And then during February, this is what we're doing. And then March, this is what we're doing. And then, and then May. So you hunt and fish and see what the life is like. And so I started that in, um, in January of 2020 and it happened to be, you know, COVID. So part of the book ends up being as a school teacher, how I'm just kind of dealing with, with COVID. It's like, oh, well, all right. So now we got this COVID thing. So I'm going bear hunting during the weekend, but then we don't have school. And, you know, what does this mean? And so toward the end of the year, um, we started to get some clarity about, you know, and I think a lot of people who, who hunt and go outside just saw how important it is that that's part of our routine and lifestyle. And I had students who would, you know, go hunting during the weekends. And it just was so, I, I, I always have had students that hunt during the weekend and they'll come and say, hey, Mr. Look, look at this buck or how'd you do Mr. Lund? And that's great to see. But then that different level of value, like, gosh, this is so important. Like these kids aren't, they're not, they aren't on lockdown. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing at their free time on the weekends is something that's so productive and so purposeful and it's legit, you know, and I think that authenticity is something that's so important for us. And, you know, we want to go outside, but sometimes I think we want to go outside and we want to hunt just so we can show to other people that we can do things. And if you chase that, I just think that it it ends up being kind of empty because it's not really for you. It's for, you know, your, your content for your whatever. And, um, it's just not, just not that simple. Right. And so I, I, I talk a lot about that. Um, you know, the importance of, of having mentors and being a mentor. And then what is our responsibility as people who hunt to, you know, other causes? You know, this is the first year that I actually, you know, provided testimony on something like I, I need to, to step up a little bit here. And it was after listening to a Randy Newberg podcast where he and Corey Jacobson were talking about, you know, just, how, how much Randy goes and he testifies like we have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to step up and we, arguing on, on Facebook about stuff that Facebook people agree with. Like that doesn't, that doesn't do anything. That's, that's talking to the wrong people. You know, those other people who are, are so good at putting the voices in the right spots with the politicians, with the, the lawyers, like we need to feel obligated on some regard to represent our, what we do and and stand up for it because it is so important and it's so valuable for people to have that that purposeful uh pursuit you know not just to make money be an entrepreneur like that's great too but also just that healthy way of living a life and feeling that purpose and that satisfaction and fulfillment why don't you uh tell everybody where they can find you where they could find the podcast the book um drop all that on us man okay uh my personal instagram is at alaska lund that's the one that i kind of keep better up to date with um i'm also the mediocre alaskan on instagram you can buy my book at a miserable paradise.com or on amazon um a miserable paradise um Life in Southeast Alaska, you can get that. Uh, it's in some bookstores up here in, in Alaska, which doesn't help uh, you if you don't live here. So the best way is to probably go to the media, uh, miserableparadise.com or um, to go to Amazon and order it off Amazon. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, follow me on Instagram for for updates, things like that. And uh, the podcast, uh, The Mediocre Alaskan, is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all that. And a, a recent addition to the Waypoint Library. I thought you were going to leave it out. So I was going to hit it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Cool, man. Well, I appreciate the time again, bro. We, uh, you know, we chatted. Well, I don't know what has it been—a couple weeks, maybe three weeks now. Yeah. Um, so it's good to do it on the other side. So I'll probably two-part this, and uh, yeah, I'll figure it out. But we'll, I'm going to drop this thing right away. I was—I I cool. think it's a good conversation, and uh, I think folks love hearing about Alaska. Uh, good, good to see it from a different perspective, right? Somebody that's there. So yeah, awesome. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thanks for, for what you're doing and, and all, the, all the work you're putting in. And good luck with your uh, trip to Colorado. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to order my book. I want you to sign it, though. you got to autograph that for me if it goes through your hands. Yeah, we will do. All right. Cool, brother. I appreciate right. it, man. You take care. Congrats you on the too. wedding. Enjoy the hunt. Thank you. We'll talk to we'll you. Will do. Bye. Thank you for listening. Follow Western Contours on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and sign up at westerncontours.com. Episodes are available on most major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.